Hello, and welcome to the 19th Amendment Speaker Series Podcast, an audio rebroadcast of the Speaker Series presented by the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association in the summer and fall of 2020. My name is Jennifer Leland, and I am honored to share the powerful conversations between successful, inspirational, and impactful women in entertainment, sports, politics, law, academia, and business. We hope you'll enjoy these great conversations and share them with others. We note that these interviews were recorded before Kamala Harris became the Democratic Vice Presidential nominee and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. These historical moments would have played a large part in our conversations. Justice Ginsburg's influence on women in the legal profession cannot be understated. In her memory, we share these conversations and pave the way for continued dialogue in service of a more equitable future. Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association, welcome to this afternoon's panel, the 19th Amendment at the Intersection of Race and Gender. I am Michelle Williams-Court, and it is my pleasure to moderate the panel and to introduce our panelists this afternoon. Paulette Brown is Senior Partner, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of Locke Lord. Ms. Brown is the first woman of color to have served as president of the American Bar Association in its 142-year history. Throughout her career, she has held a number of positions, including in-house counsel to a number of Fortune 500 companies, as well as as a municipal court judge. For more than 35 years, Paulette has engaged in the private practice of law, focusing on all facets of labor and employment and commercial litigation. She is a trailblazer in leading large organizational and law firm diversity efforts, and she regularly provides diversity and inclusion and implicit bias training to companies, law firms, and industry organizations. Patricia Guadalupe is a bilingual multimedia journalist based in Washington, D.C., where she covers the capital for both English and Spanish language media outlets. She writes a weekly political column for El Geraldo, a newspaper in Mexico City, and is a contributing writer for NBC Latino and Latino Magazine, and has contributed to NPR's Latino USA for several years as their Washington correspondent and to Latino Rebels. Previously, she was a reporter with the CBS radio affiliate WTOP Radio in Washington and contributed to the CBS radio network and has been an editor with the Hispanic Link Weekly Report. She is a member of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. Justice Marcia Slough has been an Associate Justice of the Court of Appeal of the State of California since 2016. Before that appointment, she served as a trial court judge on the San Bernardino Superior Court for 13 years. While on the Superior Court, Justice Slough handled diverse case assignments, including misdemeanor and felony trial calendars, a civil trial calendar, as well as juvenile dependency and delinquency cases. In addition, she served as the court's presiding judge and assistant presiding judge. She also served as the presiding judge of the juvenile court from 2007 until 2010. Justice Slough has worked on statewide judicial branch governance issues. She's a member of the Judicial Council of California, which is the policymaking body of the largest court system in the country, and currently serves as chair of its executive and planning committee. She previously served as chair of the Judicial Council Technology Committee. Justice Slough has also served as the chair of the statewide trial court presiding judges advisory committee, the trial court budget advisory committee, the revenue and expenditure subcommittee, and the pretrial reform operations work group. She was appointed by the Chief Justice to the Futures Commission, the Technology Planning Task Force, as well as the Task Force on Trial Court Accountability. To begin our discussion, I'd like to start with a brief look back. The right to vote for women was discussed during the drafting of the Constitution. But rather than include women's right to vote in the Constitution itself, the drafters decided to delegate that issue to the states. 
Now, as we all know, the Constitution was ratified in 1788. It wasn't until 60 years later that the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848 was held. Many people have written that it was the birth of the women's rights movement. I would argue that the movement was ongoing here and many other parts of the world long before that. But it was the first post-constitutional women's rights convention in the United States. It was attended by about 300 people, including many abolitionists, including Frederick Douglass. By 1917, remember 129 years after the ratification of the Constitution, only 10 states had granted women the right to vote. In 1916, the tide began to turn. The suffragettes held their first presidential nominating convention, which resulted in the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, being elected to Congress. In 1919, Congress approved the 19th Amendment and it was ratified 100 years ago today. I thought it would be useful to cover that history because of the striking parallels to what we're experiencing today as a society grappling with inequities in matters of gender and race. Passing and ratifying the 19th Amendment was no doubt a heavy lift, but it ensured voting rights for primarily white, middle, and upper-class women. Women of color were largely not entitled to the right to vote. Native Americans did not become citizens until 1924, and Jim Crow laws and other various laws ensured women of color were denied the right to have their voices heard. Fast forward through the civil and human rights movements of the 1960s through the present. The America of 2020 is very different from the America of 1920. How has the 19th Amendment impacted women and women of color today? First, we must explore what that question means. When we make comparisons between where we are now and where we were then, we often hear people say things like, we value diversity, or the playing field is even, so gender and race don't matter. To start the discussion to all of our panelists, I wanna ask, what do the words diversity and privilege mean to you? And let's start with Justice Slough. Thank you very much, Judge. And first, thank you so much for uh, inviting me along with these uh, other amazing women to join you to talk about this today. And, and thanks for that little snippet of history, which was really fun to listen to it and kind of let it sink in. This morning, I, like so many of you, probably received great texts from our sisters who are so happy about what today stands for. We're so far removed from the emotion of it, but we live the reality of it every day. So to get to the, the direct question, and I'll, I'll just say, when it comes to terms like diversity and privilege, those words or those constructs, for me, they're really very, very layered. They're not binary concepts. And while we've had progress demonstrated, for example, particularly in diversity when it comes to the judicial branch in California. I'm mindful that not all whites, Blacks, Latinx, Natives, Asians, all of us, none of us fall easily into a particular category. And I will say that that's particularly true when it comes to the LGBTQIA community. And that's what makes the simple words like diversity for me so complex. You know, you reference our history and the history of the 19th Amendment points to this so well, I think, because as you point out, it took years and years of hard-fought work to get us to actually the 19th Amendment becoming part of our Constitution. And as you point out, we had leaders like Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and so many others who advocated not just for suffrage, but truly for true equal rights. And then in 1921, the layers became evident when the leader of the League of Women Voters layered out or kind of separated the idea of Black women's issues as a race issue and not a woman's issue, and therefore it didn't become part of their agenda. We see this layering in so many ways in our history, and sometimes I get afraid that we tend to kind of creep back to that, what I'll call a non-diversity mindset. And maybe, perhaps, that is somehow connected to the second word that you ask about, and that's privilege. I mean, is there 
a need for us to separate a little bit me from you? Who am I, Judge, if you are me? Uh, so, so maybe kind of this layering is also connected to this concept of trying to find some emotional connection to privilege. I have a lot of hope as demonstrated by where we've come from and where we are headed as evidenced by what's happening today. You look back and you see so many particularly young men and young women advocating for women's rights, you know, back from the Women's March from a few years ago. And then what's very heartening and encouraging for me is seeing so many people from so many facets of life standing together in unity to fight for true criminal justice reform. We see young women speaking out today in ways that I never would have dreamed that I could have done. I think the best example of that was uh, seeing AOC on the floor the other day where she spoke firmly, not simply to defend herself, but to defend all who are subjected to improper aggression. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, I think diversity for me is multi-layered. And we really need to continue our push for progress in this arena. And for me, the concept of privilege, I think, really should be the focus on the privilege to have that one thread of human kindness and human ability that unites and runs through all of us and binds us all together stronger. So thank you very much, Judge. Thank you. That's very insightful. Patricia, what do those words mean to you? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for including me in this panel with such distinguished members of the uh, legal profession. Um, I think I'm the only non-lawyer in my immediate family, so I'll have to uh, go back to my brothers and sisters and say, hey, I, I was included. <laughs> so I want to thank you, first of all. Uh, I want to first take the word privilege and then uh, the word diversity. To me, privilege is being able to say, I don't look at a person's color. I've never heard a person of color say that. And that to me is privilege. It may be a well-meaning white person to say that. I don't look at a person's color. I look at them as a person. But that, that just shows to me that, that they have that incredible amount of privilege to be able to not have to worry about the uh, color or their position in life. Because when you see a person of color, they may be the most educated person in the world, but a lot of people look at them and say, well, you know, I'm gonna cross the street. I don't know what their background is. And I look at the way that people of color have been treated throughout the years, and especially lately when you have a president who, um, you know, we've had racism since the beginning of time, but we have somebody who has made it okay to be out in the open about it, to be out in the open about how we don't like diversity, according to him and his supporters. And that to me is an incredible amount of privilege. And then looking at diversity, I don't think we can have a discussion about diversity without looking at inclusion. Because diversity, you know, you can I look at my work in journalism, I can walk into a newsroom and see all kinds of different people from diverse backgrounds, but what exactly are they doing? Are they in the positions of decision making? Are they people that are creating the news? I look at, for instance, you know, some of the progress that has been made in inclusion, and I look at the uh, numbers of women of color in Congress, and Justice Slow talked about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. She is on the same level as any other one of the peers there, and that is true diversity and true inclusion, because she is a member of Congress with the same privileges and responsibilities than anybody else there. And I think that when we talk about diversity, we definitely have to include inclusion because it's not just about having people who look different, it's about having people who look different, who bring a different perspective and are able to do something about it and not just be on the sidelines. 
I agree wholeheartedly. Paulette, what do you think when you hear those words? The same as Patricia for the first part with regard to diversity. I think that diversity and inclusion are inextricably entwined. I also think about equity versus equality in that equation as well. And that people should really understand the difference between equity and equality. They are not the same. I don't have much to add to what Patricia said about diversity. When I think about diversity, I think about having a variety of people in a particular space. When I think about inclusion, I think about those people who are in those spaces having opportunities that are equal to others, being able to have their voice heard, being able to have a seat at the table and have food passed to them, like the food is passed to everyone else and have an opportunity to partake in that food that's going around the table. And I think that it means being valued, even though you may be considered as other. When I think of privilege, I think of so many different things. And as Justice mentioned, there are multiple layers of privilege. And I think that people don't have an understanding of what privilege means. Then that's because they are so privileged. They don't have to think about things. You know, when white children's sons go to the store, they don't have to give them a lecture about being careful and what could possibly happen to them. They'll talk. And so many of them don't know what the talk is. And that is because they have a privilege, certain things you don't have to think about. And even if you take it outside of the context of race, I heard a story about a woman who lost a lot of weight and she's like, oh yes, now I can ride a roller coaster. And so that is something that I would never think about. I would just go and get on the roller coaster. So I don't have to think about those things. I can just bring myself and think everything's going to be okay. And when you have the opportunity to do that, you have a privilege. It's the same thing when you are a legacy and you just get into college. You have a privilege. And so there are multiple layers of privilege. But in the context of what we're talking about today, I think that privilege is, as you mentioned in your historical background, which was really wonderful, it started for middle class and upper class women, women of quote unquote privilege, women who own property, and in fact, some who didn't get married so that they could own property. And they wanted really kind of an exclusive club. And when they saw that they couldn't move from place to place if they had, you know, black women with them, like when they traveled to the South, you know, they had a privilege. They had a privilege that they can go to the South and promote uh, what they thought was important to them, whereas black women could not do that. And so, you know, it's the ability to do certain things and you assume certain things about others when you have privileges as well. And so if you have certain privileges, you may not understand why a black person has had to move from one firm to another firm because of tensions. But because you have not had to do that. And so, you know, I could go on and on with the gazillion examples, but I think that you get the drift. You know, privilege is just when you have an advantage that someone else does not have. And most of the times you don't understand that you have that advantage. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanna to start to peel back some of these layers because I mean, part of the reason that I gave a kind of a summary of, of the historical landscape at the beginning is because this issue of the intersection of race and gender is so nuanced and it's not just race and gender. There are so many different things that go into each one of those things. And then when you intersect them, it becomes even more complicated. Um, I was really struck twice in the last two weeks. Once, when I was watching the media coverage, when Vice President Biden announced that his vice presidential running mate was going to be Kamala Harris. And I was really struck by the fact that it took at least 15 or 20 minutes before people could actually start talking, actually a little bit longer than that, about her and her qualifications uh, that she would bring to that job. The, the first 10 or 15 minutes was were all about him and him holding his hand out and building a bridge. Uh, and then uh, people would bring up uh, 
certain attributes that people might not consider to be particularly positive about Kamala Harris and why she should, might not be the right person. And then about 20 minutes in, we actually started hearing coverage concerning her, her qualifications. The same kind of thing happened last night in a different way after Michelle Obama spoke at the Democratic Convention. The first 10 or 15 minutes were about her as a first lady, as a, a mother, as a, a wife, almost like people were amazed that someone who occupies those spaces in our society has opinions and can speak the way she did and uh, can be as strategic as she was. And Patricia, I've been dying to ask you this question on our webinar because I think that to your point earlier about the fact that we don't have a lot of women or women of color in leadership in the newsrooms and in journalism, that that really informs the way we're getting our information from the media. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you think about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're absolutely 100% right, hit a nail on the head on that coverage. I mean, people forget that Michelle Obama was Michelle Robinson before she got married, and she was Barack Obama's mentor at their law firm. Very few people remember that. Very few people even know that. And she was actually one of the people who sort of guided him in the beginning. A very funny story that I heard one time where he said to her shortly after he had won the presidency, he said, well, aren't you glad that you got married to me? Because, you know, now I'm the president. And of course, I want to thank you for helping me out and for going out on that first date because part of their relationship story is that she turned him down a few times partly because they worked in the same law firm and she was still his mentor and, you know, it wouldn't look good, obviously. And she said, you know, if I wouldn't have married you, someone else would have been president. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, not just an incredibly strong woman, but an incredibly intelligent woman all on her own, aside from the fact that she was the first lady. We know that she's a best-selling author. There are rumors already that if the Biden campaign wins, that her name is going to be floated around for a spot on the Supreme Court. And I wouldn't doubt that that would be happening. But you're absolutely right about the coverage of it, because if you look at I was doing a a little bit of channel surfing last night right after the speech. MSNBC had several female panelists on there, including um, some of their anchors like Rachel Maddow. And they were focusing on her speech. CNN and a few other folks with the male pundits on there were doing exactly what you're talking about. Oh, you know, how she's juggled her her life and, you know, it's great and how wonderful. But the impact of her speech was the first thing that you heard from the female pundits on the channels that had them. And that is a big difference in the way that things are covered. Just look back on 2016 when Hillary Clinton was running. She was referred to as Hillary. You know, she later adopted that and that became a part of her campaign. But look at the way that people are even talking about Kamala Harris and Tucker Carlson on Fox News uh, mispronouncing her name on purpose, making fun of her. And, and one of the things that's, that they do in a, in a not so subtle way is refer to these incredibly accomplished people by their first names. Now, you know, Joe Biden has a lot of, you know, his campaign says Joe, but part of the reason that he does that is that he wants people to consider him as sort of an everyday, you know, common folk, even though he was in the Senate for a really long time and vice president, of course. But he's like a regular Joe. And so that's part of his campaign model. But when a woman uses just her first name, then that's considered, you know, well, that's some, that, that isn't any someone that we can take seriously. And you can see that with the way that Kamala Harris has been portrayed, even with this whole ridiculous birther notion, uh, well, she's not qualified because her parents are immigrants, but, you know, she, she has like the triple whammy of being a woman, 
uh, a woman of color and in a position that would actually be, you know, a historic position if that particular ticket wins. And so, you know, we see a, a couple of stories already about her husband. And if you look at the byline, those are, they're written by women. You know, one of the NBC stories that came out about her husband was written by a female reporter saying, well, who is this guy? Who's her husband? He's a very powerful entertainment lawyer, partner in a law firm in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., but not too many people know about him. So they thought, you know, let's do a story on him and see about that. You know, but everybody's looking at the way that they cover her as, well, she's just, you know, kind of like dismissive in a way. And that has a lot to do with, unfortunately, a lot of the misogyny that has been around since the beginning of time, that no matter how much progress we make as women, we still have to deal with that. And it's extra hard, especially if you are a woman of color. May I ask a question, Judge? Of course, go ahead. To the panel and particularly to you, Patricia, do you believe that part of that comes from the fact that it is still such a predominantly male and white organization? And so in order for us to receive her willingly, we've got to kind of funnel it and make her likable and oh no, she is like us and no, no, she's not really different from us. And so whether intentional or habitual, is that kind of where that comes from? Yeah, that comes from the lack of women and people of color in these leadership positions and decision-making positions in newsrooms that say, you know, let's cover this in a different way. Let's bring in a different perspective. Let's not do the usual suspect kind of coverage. And that has been a problem for female candidates from the very beginning. I mean, I've even seen erroneous reporting that, well, she's the first woman of color to run for such a high office when, you know, that is absolutely not true. When you think of Shirley Chisholm, for instance, and there's a very big portrait of her in the Capitol that a lot of people just walk by without realizing the impact that she had in moving women in the political field. And I would say that if it weren't for her, a lot of the progress that the women's rights movement among white women did wouldn't have gotten as far as it had. And so a lot of times we have a real lack of understanding of history. And one of the things that I know that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Justice Sonia Sotomayor have pushed is more civic and history education early on to include things like the women's rights movement, the right to vote and that sort of thing, so that you finally get to a point where you were not gonna be bogged down by these, what I consider absolutely ridiculous ways of covering somebody who, if you don't agree with their particular policies, then focus on that, but don't focus on, well, you know, her pantsuit was, was too dark and she kind of blended into the background or, you know, those pearls. I wonder if they got them at J. Crew. I mean, this is the kind of coverage that you see, even to this day. How can she walk around in those high heels without falling down? You never hear that kind of conversation with men. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's men, for the most part, that are in charge of the coverage. It's getting better, but it's still not where it should be by this point. Teresa, I have one more question related to that for you. Can you talk about any of your personal experiences in covering stories and having to get the leadership in the newsroom to allow you to focus on the story rather than this other peripheral stuff that really didn't have anything to do with the issue you were covering? In some respects, I've been pretty lucky in that I've had um, some good editors, like my editor at NBC News is a woman of color. And so she's been able to help shape some of the stories that I do. And in other instances, when I was working for uh, CBS radio, I remember one time one of the news director came out into the newsroom and said to me, um, well, you're, you're from Puerto Rico, right? I need to fill out this survey of the newsroom. And I said, well, um, yeah, I, I'll tell you yes, if, um, 
if it has something to do with uh, doing a story. I'm just, don't put me down just to, uh, you know, just to fill the numbers and send it upstairs. And, you know, and, and my way of doing that is like, let me, let me do it in a bit of a, with a sense of humor so that it, you know, so it doesn't sound like I'm angry. And that's part of what we're talking about that you have to, you have to be nice about it. You know, that if you come off as really angry, then they're going to look at you as like, oh my God, this is terrible. Um, whereas a man can take it to the nth degree and he's labeled a lot differently than a woman has. I've been covering a lot of congressional stories for Spanish language media where the, the same sort of sexism, it's almost like some of the Spanish language media is still stuck in the 1950s, even now. I've been pretty lucky that my immediate editors have been women. And, and I also am a member of a, a couple of journalism organizations and clubs where we commiserate and network and help each other out along the way. And I think that helps with contacts and with, you know, making sure that you're not, you know, losing your mind on, on something like that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I always tell people is make sure that you have people that you can trust that will help you along the way and will hear you out on things so that when you do run into a situation where, you know, go cover what the first lady is wearing today, you can say, no, you know, actually, I think a better idea would be, all right, if you want me to do a story about what she's wearing today, how about let's talk about how that suit is not made in the USA and what does that mean for the union labor? And that was actually a story that I did. So I, I turned it around in that regard. I think that uh, the messages that we receive from the media are so important. It informs the way uh, all of us uh, process the information that we're getting from so many different sources. I also think uh, it's very important to um, engage in, in connections with other affinity groups and, and um, professional organizations. Paulette, you are a trailblazer uh, in this area in that uh, you uh, were the first African-American woman president of the American Bar Association, and I know that you do a lot of work around diversity uh, initiatives, uh, trainings concerning implicit bias, uh, multiple publications that you have published in conjunction with others with the ABA. And I was really struck by the report that came out earlier this year called Left Out and Left Behind, the Hurdles, Hassles, and Heartaches of Achieving Long-Term Legal Careers for Women of Color. And I was really struck by something that you wrote in the preface, uh, first about how difficult it was to do that study, and I think a lot of people would be surprised at how difficult it was and why. And also a concern that the report not just be put on the shelf and have people take it down after five years and say, wow, nothing's changed. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your involvement in that, in that study and why it is so important for us to not only remember our history and where we came from, but to continue studying where we're going for purposes of this discussion? Yes, thank you. And also, Patricia, thank you for your comments, because I noticed the same thing. The program of Joy Reid, Nicole Wallace, and Rachel Maddow, they immediately started talking about the substance of the speech. So it truly makes a difference. It truly makes a difference. So the genesis of the most recent report, Left Out and Left Behind, came as a result of um, then-President Hillary Bass of the American Bar Association. She wanted her primary initiative to be the long-term careers of women in law. And I have been practicing now for 44 years. And when she said that she was going to do that report, I thought about it and I said, you know, I can like name all of the litigators who are women of color. And that is not a good thing for me to be able to name all of them who are in my generation. And I said, the experiences of women of color are very different than other women. And generally speaking, when you talk about women, when you talk about a report concerning women, when you talk about women's initiatives, you're generally talking about white women. And so I thought there needed to be a separate study to figure out what the experiences were of women of color. And not that all women of color are monolith. They are definitely not. They are different even within each affinity group. They're different. 
And so they agreed that there could be a separate study. The interesting thing was, if you look at the major report, which is called Walking Out of the Door, um, they have a lot of statistical data because there was such a large pool of women who they could draw from. With regard to our report, although it's substantive and it has data, there was not a large enough pool of women of color to get the same type of statistical analysis that was able to be had in the larger report. So that in and of itself is a problem. I mean, when you don't have a large enough pool, when you're pooling together African descendant, Hispanic, Latina, Latina um, Native Americans, um, Asian and Pacific Islanders, Southeast Asians, when you're pooling all of them together and you can't get enough people to create the type of statistical information that would really resound with people, to me, that in and of itself is a major statement. And so that's why I thought it was important for that to be included, at least in the purpose to have people understand that we are not talking about a lot of people here. You know, we are about 2% of, you know, the, the partners of color. And with regard to Black women, it's 0.75% of Black women are equity partners in law firms. And so that point really needed to be made. The other part about it being on the shelf, in 2006, there was a report that I also co-authored called Visible Invisibility, Women of Color in Law Firms. And it talked about how women of color, by the time their fifth year, 85% of them have left. And so when you look at the left out, left behind, if you read it, you will find that a lot of the women are not leaving in the same percentages as white women. And I said to myself, that's because they all left <laughs> within years. Um, but the other part of it is, is that they have more difficulty in moving once they get to more senior status. If you talk to headhunters, they have a lot more difficulty moving from one firm to another firm because they have not had the same privileges, the same opportunities as other people with regard to generation of business, getting credit for business, et cetera. So, you know, the reason we talk about not leaving it on the shelf is because we really want decision makers to look at and listen to what women of color are saying, not just lump them all in one group. Listen to what they're saying. Look at the past, because I think that if you don't understand the past, you can't move forward. Look at actual things that you have been doing and determine whether there have been any patterns in what it is that you have been doing um, so that you can disrupt those patterns. You also have to have you know, people who will interrupt bias as a general matter and have people who are true allies, not performative allies, not the ones who are going to whisper, oh, I was going to say that. I'm so glad you said that. I'm glad you did that. But somebody who's going to be up there with you and saying, amen, she's right. We need to do this. But we need to really have leaders take a close look at what's going on and to not make excuses about why there are not more women of color, especially in the law firm context. So a lot of people would like to say, we don't have women of color because our clients steal them. They've gone in-house because it's a better life and our clients like them, you know, they're so good. We didn't want them to leave. Well, guess what? They would not have been looking for another opportunity probably if you were providing what they needed where they were. You can still hear people build excuses around that. Well, it was just a better opportunity. They liked it here. Well, yeah, they may have liked it there, but they also could see that their longevity was not guaranteed or promised or even hopeful in a way that others have been hopeful. So, you know, I think we need to take a real close self-assessment of what it is that we're doing, take a real deep look at ourselves. And if there's a better time than now, I don't know when it is. And so, as I told people, I don't want to be sitting in my rocking chair drinking mint juleps talking about the same thing. I think that, you know, clients have a role in this because they've got a lot of power. They're the consumer of legal services. You know, they, they have the ability to tell people, we, you've got to do better with this. So I think that, you no know, five years from now, because of course I will be retired by then, and I don't want the people who come behind me 
have to deal with these same issues that it's like Groundhog Day over and over and over again. Right, and I worry that if we don't talk about these issues, all of the issues in the past, the present, and then what we are hoping for in the future, we don't keep the dialogue going, we are going to be in Groundhog Day. Right, and it's not just the dialogue. You have to develop some course of action. You have to put metrics on it. You have to put timetables on it because it can't be just about talk. Yes, you need to talk. Yes, you need to have the uncomfortable conversations. That's the reason why we haven't gotten any further because people don't want to talk about what they think is uncomfortable for them. And race is the most difficult thing that, or the, the most prevalent thing that they find difficult to discuss. And so, you know, everyone has a responsibility in this to push and drive this issue. Yeah, I think the same thing is happening in the, uh, in the journalism field where you have uh, recruiters saying, oh, you know, we can't find any, you know, qualified people of color. First of all, adding the word qualified, you know, well, what are you looking for? Unqualified people? Of right. course they're qualified. That should tell you right there when they're saying that, that, that they're not serious about mm -hmm. it. We can't find any qualified people. Well, you know, so far, I don't know of anybody who's unqualified for, you know, for this particular job, you know, or you have in some instances, it's almost like a fraternity. Well, let me just look in the living room and see if I can find somebody who um, is qualified, a friend of mine who's the son of the father or blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like legacy, like the legacy thing. You know, they complain about affirmative action, but how did you get into college? That sort of thing. And so what journalism groups are doing, and I think the same thing with bar associations and other professional organizations, are they're, they're being much more aggressive about saying, hey, you know, don't come with us with this okie doke of we can't find anybody because right. you're only looking around at people that you know. And so if I only talk to people that I know, I may not have the diverse pool of people to look at. And so one of the things that, you know, I always tell people, particularly recruiters, is when they say I haven't found anybody, well, where are you looking? Right. Who are you talking to? And then when you do find a diverse candidate, why are you parking them in, in the subjects that you think that they're only interested in covering? Like, you know, Latino reporters covering immigration and nothing else. Right. Or, uh, or, or Black reporters doing urban affairs. How many people of color in the Washington Post cover Congress? None, zero. But yet they created an entire race and diversity beat and they're recruiting people for it. And I tell people, yeah, that's fine and wonderful, but you're the Washington Post. What if, you're, what if I'm interested in covering Congress? What if I'm interested in covering the White House? What, they, they, they had one reporter at the Post covering Congress, who's Hispanic, Ed O'Keefe, who's now at CBS News, and that's it, you know, and the same with the New York Times, the same with the LA Times, the same with TV and radio. It's almost like, well, okay, yeah, we found diverse candidates, but, you know, let's send them to the border to cover immigration issues. I personally think that that's an important issue, but I'm not interested in that. And one of the reasons that I'm in Washington is because I want to cover Congress and I want to cover the White House and I want to cover the federal government because the community needs to know what's going on with their particular federal policies. And so one of the things that, for instance, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists is doing is calling out these places and saying, you need to widen your net. And if there's anything that we can help you with, let us know, but don't come with this excuse of we can't find anybody. And I think that the more professional organizations do that, the better it's gonna be for everybody in the long run. I agree. And I think speaking of casting a wide net and talking about the layers, we've talked a lot this afternoon about the layers. Uh, we're talking about the intersection of race and gender. And we've talked a lot about the layers on the issue of race. There are also layers on the issue of gender. If we're talking about this intersection, just like the communities of color are not monolithic and they're not even monolithic within themselves, 
also, gender is not a monolithic concept, and I don't think we can have this conversation without talking about sexual orientation. How do you think that the issue of sexual orientation impacts the conversation concerning the intersection of race and gender? And I'm going to start with Justice Slough. Thank you, Judge. Um, and it does. For me, it goes back to that theme of the layering concept that you've talked about, that we've all talked about. You know, the intersection with the sexual orientation discussion has evolved dramatically just in my life. Uh, when I was growing up in a small, really very rural conservative community in Kansas, just being a girl had its hurdles. Mm. Title IX came along, I think it was my senior year in, in high school. And then back then, the word lesbian was only used as a super pejorative term, meant to hurt, meant to sting. Mm -hmm. That's the only mm -hmm. way it was ever used. So just in the words that we use to describe ourselves and to describe ourselves to others outside our community has evolved very, very quickly from homosexual to gay, to the addition of lesbian, not as a pejorative, but a descriptor, to adding the letter Q, which some use for queer and some use for questioning their identity. Now the acronym is no longer LGBT, which it was a few years ago. It's now LGBTQIA, the I for intersex and the A for agender and asexual. And I guess I just submit that this evolutionary layered process of understanding our own selves and including each other um, has really is a byproduct of the work of the suffrage and suffrage for all and civil rights for all. Um, it's a process of tying our layers together for more what I'll call universal acceptance and support while at the same time recognizing that we're all not alike. Um, so all that to say that the intersection of race and gender uh, there also lies this huge community longing for inclusion in the dialogue and in the progressive efforts that are occurring. And again, we have to cast a very wide net to capture us all, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of sexual orientation. All our concerns aren't the same. They won't be the same. But I submit that our concerns all run parallel our concerns should be mutual, and indeed they do intersect. Justice Slough, one of the recurring themes of all of the programs that are part of this 19th Amendment series has been mentorship and connecting uh, to make sure that, and this I think ties into the earlier part of our conversation about making sure that this dialogue continues and it can't go, ever go onto the shelf because if it goes onto the shelf, we go back to zero. I'm going to ask all of you, but I'm going to start with Justice Slough. Can you talk to us about your experiences with mentors or mentees and why you think it's important or not for purposes of continuing this dialogue? Yeah, thank you. So I think that's critical and not just selected mentors or people who offer to mentor for us or to us. It's watching other people and receiving mentorship by their example, by way of their strength, by way of their willingness to stand up and speak out when they see wrong and to do it in ways, you know, whether, you know, we're a lawyer, whether we're a reporter, whether we are a judge, you know, our ability to do that is very, very different, but the responsibility to do it applies to all of us. And when I started in a very conservative county as a trial court judge, I was the only openly gay or lesbian judge in our entire county, San Bernardino, which is the largest county in the contiguous United States. It's huge. And it was me. I did have one fellow judge who came to me and said, I can tell you I'm gay. Don't tell anybody I'm gay. And don't talk about you being gay either. You won't progress in our county. But I knew that wasn't true. I just knew in my heart of hearts it wasn't true. So instead of 
taking that person on as a mentor because he approached me with the idea that he wanted to be my mentor. It was really the people who focused on being good judges that were my mentors. And by that, I mean people who treated other people who came into their courtrooms with respect and with dignity, regardless of what brought them into the door. Um, so mentoring others, I think is critical. I probably don't focus on that enough, um, but I will say I've learned from so many and I've learned from you ladies today and, and judge, I just, as you know, I care for you very, very much, not only as a friend, uh, but as a really distinguished jurist in, in our state. So thank you. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much, Shoshislaw, and the feeling is mutual. Paulette. Thank you, Justice, for, for your comments. And I think mentorship is so important. And I also think that no matter how old you are, what your position is, what your quote unquote status is, that everybody could still use a mentor because no one knows everything. And from time to time, everyone needs to know how to navigate a particular situation. And so I think that, you know, it's to the benefit and you, and you do, you look to the person who you think is doing something well or what something that you wanna do or you wanna be and you sort of gravitate to them and they may become your, unknowingly your mentor, um, but they are nevertheless. I also think that it is very, very critical to serve as a mentor. In fact, I think it's your duty and responsibility to do so. And you know, one of the reasons that I do it, and I probably, my son used to tease me and say, you have 267 children, <laughs> meaning that's how many people that I was mentoring. So I don't know if he got that random number, but, um, but you know, I, it is important because I know that I am the first lawyer in my family and you know and technically the first person to go to college in my family and so i know and i didn't know any lawyers and i know that sometimes you don't know that you can be something unless you see it and i understand how difficult it is to be in a black woman in america and also a black woman lawyer in america and so you want to help others who are coming behind you help to navigate those situations and also to give them reassurance that they are the brilliant people that they have always known themselves to be and just because they've moved into a particular environment that doesn't make them any less smart than they already were and so i think that 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 it's really incumbent upon those of us who are more senior and seasoned um, to make sure that we provide really good mentorship and be honest with people. And then those who are mentees, you have to make sure that you're a good mentee as well, that you have to reach out to your mentee and, and share things with them. Um, and, and one last thing I have to tell you, a little tidbit, and it's selfish, because what I have learned from mentoring things, and I've had a mentoring group since 2006, um, they don't know how much I'm getting from them. I'm probably getting more from them than I am giving them um, because they are just so smart and so creative and they are so full of ideas and hope and promise. And so, um, and so, you know, that to me is an advantage of being a mentor because you learn so many things. Patricia? Wow, it's hard to add to that. Um, I have to agree with with both of what you're saying, and 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 to tell people, you know, you don't have to necessarily find a mentor within your field, um, because uh, I mean that's always a good idea. But it's also a good idea to you know have somebody that you can trust, somebody that you can say pretty much anything to. And, and bounce off of ideas from. They don't necessarily have to be in the same field that you're in, but they can give you guidance. And it's almost like having a professional friend um, that, that will uh, be, you'll be able to bounce some ideas from. And, and make sure that you stay active and current in your particular associations. 
Um, the, uh, the, the yearly dues are not just so that, you know, they, they, someone can have a fancy office. It's, it's to help you out. And, and it's to uh, have tools available for you and um, to, to be able for you to take advantage of those things. And especially now that we're not really able to see each other in person, it's incredibly important to keep in touch because um, you, we can't say, oh yeah, let me meet you for some coffee next week because we're not, we're not sure when we're gonna be able to uh, completely open up and, and go back to you know, those kind of networking happy hours and cocktail hours and lunches and things like that and early breakfast. So it, I think it's really important to keep in touch as much as possible with uh, your colleagues and people that you trust to help you along the way. And like Paulette said, you, you get a lot of it out of it yourself too. I mean, I've learned from some of the uh, folks that I've um, helped along the way and, and the same, you know, and vice versa. And we keep in touch with all kinds of things because, you know, one of the, one of the uh, things that I tell people that they, when, when they complain about how, oh, well, you know, so-and-so got that job because their dad knew somebody and, you know, the old boys network kind of thing. Well, we need to do that same sort of thing, you know, and do more of that and say, you know what? I know somebody who's, who's, who would be perfect for that. Let me give you her number. Here's, uh, give her a call and I'm going to follow up with you tomorrow if you don't call her and, um, and, and then I'm going to call her and see how it went you know, and be very proactive in that regard and, and not be afraid because that's exactly uh, what the stereotypical white men do, you know, when they get together to play golf and hang out in the clubs. Maybe not so much now because of coronavirus, but that old boys network is, is alive and well. And we need to do the same thing with women and particular women of color where, well, you know, we, don't, we, we can't be afraid of being assertive and of, you know, saying, I'm the one that you should pick. I'm the one. And if I'm not the one, I know somebody who is and, and be like that. I think and, that. and being ambitious is not a bad word. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, 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 and then I'm glad that you brought that up because that's one of the things that that they that people talk about, you know, right. when they talk about right. women. Right. Oh, right. she's kind of snarky and ambitious, and she's kind of bitchy, and you know, and and all those words for men. Oh, yeah, he's really strong. He's assertive. He's right. in charge. You right. know, and and we have to remember that those are code words. Right. For keeping women down. And that's we, right. We we can't tolerate that. Right. And I think this is a good word. It, ambition is a good word. And I do think that one of the, the benefits of doing uh, mentoring and becoming a mentor or a mentee and reaching across uh, different demographics, it doesn't necessarily, like uh, Patricia said, doesn't necessarily have to be somebody in your field, doesn't necessarily need to be um, someone that you consider to be in your particular affinity group. I think as long as we're, we do this and we have these, con we continue to have these kinds of conversations, we'll be able to peel through all of the layers and that's how we're going to get to a place where we're not going to have to write in the preface of our book, please don't put this on the shelf, because people mm -hmm. will be constantly talking about this. It will be becoming refreshed. It becomes part of our, our dialogue and the way we all work through, walk through the world so that we don't have to have conversations about where we are because it's something uh, that people will come to recognize as part of the general common experience. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, and, and it's something that I tell young Latinas in particular, where you know, where they where they say, you know, well, I'm I'm afraid of you know coming forward, or I don't know if I can do this. I tell them, you know, walk in there like you know what's going on, yeah. and then ask questions. Right. But walk in, you know, like you know that you belong there because you do. Right. You know. And 
chances are it, you'll have allies in that room and you will, you'll, not only will you feel like you belong there, you actually will belong there in the eyes and the perception of the other people in that room. Exactly. exactly. I'd like to thank all of our phenomenal panelists. Thank you so much for a very interesting and thought provoking uh, conversation. Um, on behalf of the National Association of Women Judges, uh, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, the LA County Bar Association, and all of the other sponsoring organizations, I'd like to thank you all so much for tuning in and listening uh, to our conversation. I think it has been a very important discussion. I've learned so much from all three of you. Thank you all so much and be well. And thank, thank you, you very thank much you. for having me. Pleasure, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Please subscribe to receive future episodes and please share with colleagues and loved ones. You can learn more about this series at lacba.org slash podcasts. Thank you to the planning committee, the Honorable Nicole Bershon, the Honorable Michelle Williams-Court, Julie Gerchik, a partner at Glazer Weil LLP, the Honorable Samantha Jessner, the Honorable Serena Murillo, the Honorable Elizabeth White, and the Honorable Amy Yerke. We are grateful to Cecilia Gomez and Tom Walsh from LACBA for their hard work supporting the speaker series and to Lynn Florin for producing the podcast.